Well, on Sunday, we were in Exodus 19 with the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai and with God coming down upon it and Moses making his treks up and down it as a mediator between God and man. We said on Sunday that that was a a real good moment and as great and as glorious as it was, something more was needed. And so we also went to Hebrews 12 on Sunday because it comments upon and builds upon Exodus 19, showing Christ as the perfect mediator, the final one who didn't go up to a cloud, but went up to heaven itself and made intercession there. And thereby, he leads with himself all those who would ever come to believe. When all of that represents a a better mountain than uh, than Sinai, it represents Mount Zion. You might know the book of Hebrews does that kind of whole Bible thing many times over, over many different themes. Hebrews holds hands with the Old Testament unlike any other New Testament book. Many times over, it takes an Old Testament text or person or thing or event, and then it unpacks it all in light of the New Testament or the New Covenant and all of the developments that happen between the old and the new. Well, tonight, I'd like to take us to another example of that kind of thing in the book of Hebrews, one that continues to compare and contrast Moses and Jesus. So turn with me to Hebrews 3, if you haven't turned there yet. Hebrews 3 is a passage that will continue to provide some relevance and illumination in our study of Exodus. It will also, of course, help us to continue to piece together parts of our Bibles into what we call a biblical theology. It will help us, of course, to to better see and understand the, the great glory and supremacy of Christ. And really all of this, I think, will help us to endure in the faith, endure in our belief, in our trust, in our confidence in Christ. Now, before we look at Hebrews 3, I want to take a couple of minutes to give you the backstory to the book of Hebrews. Because whenever someone picks up pen to begin to write, especially in the case of these New Testament letters that we have in our Bibles, uh, they write with purpose. They write not just aimlessly or just out of affection, but they write with purpose. We could even say in the case of these New Testament letters, they write because of a problem. There's a problem that needs addressing on the other side. And that might sound overly pessimistic that every New Testament letter is written in light of a problem or problems. But I've found it to be true in my study of the New Testament. And it's undeniably and unmistakably true in the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who authored the letter. We don't know the exact recipients intended by the author, unlike, say, the the book of Philippians, where it's written to the church at Philippi. We don't have that precisely with Hebrews. But we can piece together the concern that the unknown author had on the other end. 
the letter was written for Jewish Christians, hence the title, Hebrews. And they were being persecuted, likely by non-Christian Jews. And so they're being persecuted for their faith in Christ as Messiah. And these persecutors were not only using pain as an incentive in their mind to come back home, away from Christ, but they were also seeking to persuade them. They sought to convince these Hebrew Christian converts of the glory of the old Jewish ways. And so apparently they'd been teaching and persuading and seeking to convince of the glory of Moses, the glory of Sinai, the glory of the tabernacle, the glory later on of the temple, the glory of the priestly system, the glory of sacrifices. And sadly, between the persecution and the attempts at persuasion, some of these Jewish Christians, at least professed Christians for a time, they had turned back. They had turned from Christ to a Christless Jewishness. They went back to the forms and to the shadows of the Old Testament, leaving behind the fulfillment and the substance of truth that had already come in Christ. So the writer of Hebrews writes to warn, to warn the remaining or waning Jewish Christians to not turn back. And he does this sometimes by direct warning, simply by a statement, don't do it. And sometimes, more often, by, by a lengthy exposition, a theological exposition on the supremacy of this or that part of what we have in Christ in the new covenant. And so a key word for the book of Hebrews would be the word better, better. And we certainly saw that idea, if not the word better, in our passage of Hebrews 12 on Sunday. Jesus is a better mediator with a better covenant, with better blood, and so you're on a better mountain and you have better access to God now. Well, Hebrews 3 does something very similar to that. Again, comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. Not surrounding a single event like Hebrews 12 did with Mount Sinai, but here more generally regarding the comparison and contrast of Moses and Jesus regarding their callings and their character and their importance and their significance. And one more thing to say before we get to the nitty-gritty. Unlike some other parts of Hebrews, which might focus on, say, Moses' inadequacy, which were real, real inadequacies, real shortcomings. He was just a human being. Some of those passages focus on the inadequacies of Moses in order to show Christ's supremacy. But Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, actually plays in to Moses' excellencies in order to argue for Christ's greater excellencies. Now, I don't know if this is an argument in logic or not. You know, there's the argument from the lesser to the greater. Maybe someone can help me out after the service, but I see here an argument from the great to the greater. 
don't know if that's a legitimate category or not, but it's here. Let me show you. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, the main verb is right there in verse 1, consider Jesus. Consider him. This is a, a rich word, at least it can be. It's not used very often in the New Testament, and sometimes it can just be you know, sort of look over there, or how about this, something a little less significant. And other times it's very significant, like in Acts 7, verse 31, when Stephen in his sermon refers to Moses gazing at the burning bush, Stephen says he was amazed at the sight, that's not our word, but he drew near to look. There, that's our word. Moses gazed at a burning bush that wasn't being consumed, and he drew near to look. He was bewildered. He wondered. He staggered at it. Consider this. Consider him. Or in Acts 11, the word is used when Peter has that vision of the bloodied animals on the sheet, and it says, looking at it closely... I observed. There, that's our word. Consider it. Peter considered what that dream was about, and we need tonight to consider Jesus in all that he is and all that he's done. In classic epistolary form, epistolary form, in other words, being uh, didactic here, it's uh, instructional, it's, it's line-by-line stuff. This is sort of Aristotelian logic on fire, precept by precept laid down. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, gives us at least six aspects of Christ for us to consider with Moses as the comparison and contrast in the background. So first, let's consider him as apostle and high priest. That's where he starts out in verse 1, Christ the apostle and high priest of our confession. You might think apostle, that's unusual as a reference to Christ. And it is. This is the only place in the New Testament he's called an apostle. You think of the 12. Well, he's not one of the 12, of course. He, he appointed them. But the word apostle means sent one. The apostles his apostles were sent out, and, and there's a sense in which before that, Jesus was the preeminent sent one. And there is a sense in which Moses, a long time ago, was God's sent one. 
the comparison and contrast between Moses and Jesus isn't referenced in verse 1, but it will be in verse 2 and the verses that follow, so we'll keep it in mind right from the beginning. Moses was this unique apostolic figure of the Old Testament when he was alive. He was sent by God and represented God. He was the human instrument of God and his power on earth. Just listen how Deuteronomy 34 summarizes and celebrates Moses. Verse 10, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now from one angle we could say, oh, it was God who did all that. Moses just stood there and held out a stick. Yeah, that's one angle, and that's a very important one. It's usually the angle in Exodus. But in celebrating the end of Moses' life, uh, his people look back and they see an unusual man, a singularly used prophet and miracle worker. But then comes Jesus. Jesus, indeed, is the ultimate sent one, the Apostle, as the writer of Hebrews uses that term. John's gospel account emphasizes Christ's sentness more than any other of the gospel accounts. He's the one sent from God. He's sent from heaven. In fact, over 30 times in John's 21 chapters, Jesus refers to the Father as the one who sent me. You can just search sent me and find all those which means he's validated by God. He is commissioned by God. Uh, his words are God's words. Christ is the sent one, even far more than Moses ever could be. And he's the high priest. You might wonder, how is Moses in any sense a high priest? Well, you'd be right that Aaron is going to be the capital H, capital P, high priest of the Old Testament, in just a few chapters in Exodus. But, but there's a sense in which, as we saw on Sunday, Moses going up and down the mountain, he is a unique interceder. He is the middleman, the go-between. He doesn't even need the title that Aaron will have later on. He doesn't even need to make sacrifices to go between God and man. But Christ is a whole different kind of high priest, go-between, or middle man. Hebrews 8 and 9, we have two chapters of Hebrews devoted to Christ as the perfect and final high priest. You can look at those chapters on your own later on. But secondly, we consider his similar faithfulness in verse 2. We consider Jesus' similar faithfulness. Similar to who? Well, who else? Moses. You see, verse 2, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Let's start with Moses' faithfulness. 
that last bit of verse 2, faithful in all God's house, is an allusion to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. There, God told Aaron and Marion that Moses was faithful in all my house. Now, it's worth with uh, Old Testament quotations in the New Testament or quotation or allusions in the New Testament, it's worth going back to the Old Testament context a bit and poking around a little bit to see if there's something more to just the quick quote or allusion that we have in the New Testament. So if you would, turn back to Numbers 12. And indeed, we have that the case in Numbers 12 where there's more to the story than just this one little phrase, faithful in all my house. The writer of Hebrews wants us to go back and remember this whole story. Starting in verse 1 of Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. Now, let's leave aside Moses' marriage to a, to a Cushite woman for now. Well, for today. If nothing else, for time's sake, but... But even apart from time's sake, you can see that God doesn't even address it. Not that it wasn't wrong. It may have been wrong, but it wasn't the main point. What God emphasizes to Miriam and Aaron is Moses' uniqueness and his general faithfulness. There was simply no prophet like Moses in those days. You can think of how God would even speak to an Ezekiel. He would give him visions. And Ezekiel would be left to write down, yes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he'd write down things like the word like, using like almost like a teenager does today. It was like this, and it was like that, and then I saw this, and it was like that, and like that, and like, 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 Ezekiel, come on. Because he got a vision. Different than Moses in a tent with God, or on a mountain with God, mouth to mouth, no riddles, no visions, just God. But alongside that, consider Jesus 
and his uniqueness and his faithfulness. Consider his unparalleled communion with God in the Trinity. Consider the eternal, intimate communion of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Consider Christ's revelation of God. He spoke on behalf of God as God. He was the word of God incarnate. Consider his faithfulness. Consider his supreme faithfulness. Thirdly, consider his surpassing glory. Verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Well, as for Moses' glory, let's not discount that. I mean, Moses saw some things in his day. Mount Sinai, later in Exodus, in chapter 33, he will see something of the shielded backside of God's glory. Who knows what that was like? But we do know that when he went down the mountain in Exodus 34, his face was glowing from it. Moses was a big deal. Moses kept being a big deal long after his death. Moses' name is mentioned 847 times in the Bible. Third only to Jesus and David. He's up there in that kind of talk. The top three in Moses' quote-unquote greatness uh, was, even, was even greater, you could say, after his death and even outside the Bible. Here's what I mean. Let me give you some quotes of what, what various ancients have said about Moses, like Ben Sirah, uh, who was a, a rabbi around 180 B.C., He said that Moses was beloved by all humanity and that he was made the equal of the holy ones in glory. Ben Sarah put Moses up there with heaven's angels. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote, The wisest of the Greeks learned to adopt the conception of God from the principles with which Moses supplied them. Or, in the words of someone else, summarizing Josephus, who goes on at greater length, they said the notion that the best philosophy was plagiarized from Moses came from Josephus. You get that, Aristotle, Plato? Josephus said... Ah, they got that from Moses. He didn't know how, but he just assumed. The rabbinic tradition gave so many examples of, uh, of belief that Moses was held in higher esteem than the angels. And Philo referred to Moses as king, lawgiver, high priest, and prophet, the best of kings, the holiest of men. And one scholar summarized the first century view of Moses like this as the supreme example of perfection in the sense of immediacy and access to God. 
I could go on with other quotes about how great, great Moses was. And so you have to understand that this is the air that was breathed by Jews in the first century. And you have to understand then the real controversy about talking about a, a, guy, from, a guy from Nazareth, a carpenter, an itinerant preacher who was homeless, who was crucified. Rumor had it, his body disappeared. Some said, some said that he was raised from the dead. That guy's better than Moses? You sure? Well, yeah. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess, in heaven and on earth. You think of those heavenly praises for Jesus' worth and glory in Revelation 4, Revelation 7, Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. There's a lot of praise out there in this world. There are a lot of fascinating people. There are even a lot of saints whom God has used, and some he's used mightily. But in heaven, we will only have one focus for our praise. It is Jesus. He alone is the one who's worthy. He has surpassing glory. And so we as Christians are not only to acknowledge his unique, unsurpassed glory, but we're to behold it. We're to try to apprehend it more and more. We're, try to, we're to meditate upon it. Here are a couple of quotes from a couple of Johns. John Owen and John MacArthur. John Owen said, It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. So if we Christians desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest and peace and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and die, said Owen. On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. Well, that's John Owen. Here's John MacArthur. The reason so many Christians are weak and worried is they do not keep considering Christ. The Holy Spirit continually says to every believer, consider Jesus. 
when life gets rough and problems seem to have no solution and everything goes bad and disappointment and depression become normal and temptation seems impossible to resist, put your gaze upon Jesus and keep it there intently until he begins to unfold before your very eyes in all of his glorious power. Consider him. That's what we're trying to do tonight. That's what we need to continue to do as Christians. Fourth, consider him as the builder of a house. He's the builder of a house. In the second half of verse 3 and into verse 4, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now this house has already been alluded to in verse 2. Faithful in God's house was Moses. And the house is the people of God. It's Israel in the Old Testament, it's the church in the New Testament. Moses was a pre, he, was a, he had a preeminent role, we could say, in the house of God in his day. King David, later on, would have a preeminent role in the house of God. But Christ not only has a preeminent role in the house of God's people, he is the builder of that house. Moses was part of the house. He was a, he was a resident in the house. Jesus is the architect of the house. He's, he's the, the foreman of the house and its building. He is the one doing the building. And it says in verse 4, the builder of all things is God, which clearly equates Jesus with God. Verse 3 refers to Jesus as the builder. Verse 4 says God is the builder. Well, it's splitting hairs, I suppose. It's a, it's a, a failed attempt, I suppose, to try to say, well, Jesus is kind of a builder, like lowercase lower b, and then God is also a builder in like a capital B. No, this is referring to Jesus as God, as the builder. He's the one who said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, which means it's on the offensive. When you hear the gates of hell will not prevail against it, you might think hell is trying to attack what Jesus is building, that it's on the offensive. But no, the gates are for protection. It's... It's the gates that won't prevail over Christ building his church. He will conquer hell and Satan in building his church. He will hold nothing back. He builds it with omnipotence and infinite wisdom. And as an aside, it's astounding that Christ the builder actually invites us, his people, to join him in the building as messengers to represent him and invite people in, into his house. So in Luke 14, there's the, the parable of a, a great banquet in the master's house. And the master, God, has sent his messengers out. It says, to the streets and to the lanes of the city, to bring in the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. 
And the messengers come back and report to the master. They say, still there is room. And the master says to the servants, go out then to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Oh, that we are his messengers and representatives in the building of his house is astounding. And yet, let's not forget that in reality, the end result of all the building is him and his doing. The results are his. The credit is his. The honor and glory is his. Christ is the builder. Fifth, consider him as the faithful son. Notice verse 5, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And again, Moses was a faithful servant. We could explore that more. Yes, I know that you know, he had a hard time getting over this calling for you know, being God's messenger. It occupied several chapters early in Exodus. Yes, we'll, we'll see him lose his temper uh, he was almost killed by God when he refused for too long to uh, circumcise his son. You could put together a, a resume of his failings, and it's not very exciting. It's quite sad, but, but that's not the point here. The point here is all the good and all the faithful and all the ways in which God used him. And yet he was a faithful servant, not a son. Consider that Christ was uniquely the Son. Moses served, verse 5 says, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later on. And he did do that. We're thankful for it. But we're also even more thankful for Christ who, well, he's the essence of God's speech to us. He is the in the words of Hebrews early on, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. God spoke many times in many ways before, but now he has spoken in his Son. Sixth, consider your confidence and hope in him. Consider your confidence and hope in him. The second half of verse 6 and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now what a mingling of concepts we have here. This is mysterious, intimidating, and yet profound and needed. And so it's worth our attention to to get our hands around the thickness and the seeming tension of some of the things we find in the second half of verse 6. You know, at the beginning, we have such great confidence, great assurance. We are his house. Personally, we may wish that right there, there was an exclamation point, and the rest of the sentence was not there. We are his house. What great news, what great comfort, what great assurance, what great relational care and intimacy. But it says we are his house if. If, if, you just said we are his house. 
We were just talking about assurance and confidence. Where'd that go, writer of Hebrews? If what? Go on, let's read on. If we hold fast, if we hold fast our confidence and our hope, we are God's house. If we hold fast, hold fast our confidence. You see how this is mysterious? How this is a mingling of ideas? Well, we need to give it some thought because it's, it's almost the essence of the book of Hebrews. So holding fast comes up other places like Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Or chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Or there's this idea in Hebrews 10, 35, do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. Don't give up. You see, that's what some had done among these Hebrew Christians, quote-unquote Christians, some had proved at this point that they had once a profession of Christ, but not truly the possession of Christ. They were among those who would have said in heaven one day at the judgment seat, Lord, Lord, did we not do many things? And he would say, depart from me, I never knew you. You might say, well, does this mean they, they lost their salvation? No. No true Christian loses their salvation. Some professing Christians are deceived for a time. And even those around them for a time, they couldn't possibly know. But their disobedience and unrepentance and eventually their unbelief prove that they never really believed despite their one-time confession and despite a temporary show of changed behavior. The classic text for this is 1 John 2.19 where John speaks of false teachers like this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. This is the category of Judas. It's what we call apostasy. We, we see examples of it all through Paul's letters, especially First and Second Timothy, that certain people were swerving from the truth and wandering away. That some little old widows even had strayed after Satan. Some, because of the love of money, have wandered away from the faith, Paul says. He says in 2 Timothy 2 that Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. In his last chapter of his last letter, he said, Some will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. 
Our passage, Hebrews 3, the last verse of our text, verse 6, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and hope. Our passage simply wants to make sure you don't follow the lead of Judas, that you don't pull a Hymenaeus and Philetus, that you're not among those of 1 John 2.19. The if of this verse, if indeed we hold fast, is not meant to unsettle legitimate assurance of salvation. It's meant to make sure that our faith is firmly settled on the one we're considering this evening. Him, him, him. It must be settled there to be saved. It must be settled there if you're saved. To quote the, those great theologians of rock journey, you just don't stop believing. Now we can critique the other half, hold on to that feeling in. That's not part of the Christian equation necessarily. It's not about a feeling. But you don't stop believing. Christians are Christians simply by believing and Christians are those who keep believing, not perfectly so, of course not. Every Christian has ups and downs and has doubts, but they genuinely continue to believe. And so Christian, continue to believe. And don't play loose with it. Don't get comfortable with things that threaten belief. Don't get comfortable with things going away that used to feed your belief. When in doubt, consider him. You come back to him the same way you come to him the first time, in repentance and faith. But you keep at it. You keep at it. You keep at it. The writer of Hebrews, you can feel it. He writes with tears because he knows of some people who have turned aside. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you know some people. You have some people. Maybe people you thought you led to the Lord and you found out later it wasn't real. And you still pray for him to come home, to come home. Sinner, come home. But they haven't yet. And we don't know what God has until they die. Even then, we're not totally sure. But we do know there's that category of those who once said they wanted to follow Christ. And then one day they just said, I'm done. It didn't happen overnight. That's the scary thing. No one wakes up after a Tuesday of great devotions with Jesus and says, Wednesday, I'm done. That's it. That's the little stuff. It's getting comfortable with, with those things that pull us away from belief, however small it seems at first, and getting comfortable with less of Jesus. By the way, this means that Jesus is better than fill in the blank. This evening we're considering how Jesus is better than Moses, and so he's better than the old covenant, and he's better than all that that implies. He's better than Mount Sinai. But most people in this room, unless you come from a staunchly Jewish background, you're not tempted to go back to Moses. 
So what are you tempted to go back to? What is it? What is that thing that someone, if they knew your heart, would write to you like the writer of Hebrews does and plead with you, do not give up on Christ in order to go back to this stupid thing or even this good thing. Moses wasn't bad, he was good. The Old Testament wasn't bad, it was good. Would kids one day actually turn my heart from Christ if there's ever a choice to be made? Oh, I sure hope not. We sing sometimes, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So, Lord, take my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. If you don't feel any sense of a proneness to wander from the Lord, you're probably deceived and you're probably on dangerous ground. It's within us to wander and yet the Lord is greater than that. We, we obey the writer of Hebrews seeking to hold fast to our confession and our confession is about one who will hold us fast. Let's believe that. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need each other. If we read on in Hebrews 3, we would find that we're to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that hardness of heart and deceitness, deceitfulness of sin doesn't happen. We need the Bible, we need each other, we need the church, we need songs, we need the supper, the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that he received from the Lord what he also delivered to the Corinthians, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper shows us what we needed for salvation. Nothing less than the execution of the Son of God upon a cruel cross in the hands of sinners. Nothing less than being forsaken by the Father for a time as the Son bore our sin upon that tree. The, Lord show, the Lord's Supper, though, shows us where our hope lies. It lies outside of us. It lies in the finished work of Christ. He's not in these elements. These are mere memorials of what he did. His body was torn. His blood was spilt. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He's not here. He will come again. And so this meal also reminds us that he'll come again. We eat and we drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper 
In the meantime, until he comes, it preaches to us in this tangible, invisible form what the gospel is and what Christ did and what we need. And it reinvites us in. It reinvites us. Not, not that you have stepped outside of it if you're a Christian, but if in any sense your faith has waned or weakened or you feel like your sin has put up this permanent wall between you and God that the blood of Jesus cannot conquer, then this meal invites you to rethink that. It re-invites you into fellowship. It re-invites you in as you repent of your sins and simply cling to Christ as you simply tonight consider him in the supper.